Somebody in a panel I attended yesterday started speaking about building the post-worker movement. It's the idea that the employed working class is passe, boring at best, uh, non-existent, or disappearing soon uh, in a factory near you. Now, to me, this is not a strategy. This is surrender on the field of power, class power. That if we don't understand, yes, we need to organize the precarious, the unemployed, the reserve army of labor, to put it that way. But if we don't have the central source of power uh, in the workplace, on the job, etc., if that is not organized on a class basis, then we do not have the power to overthrow this system, which is, I presume, why most of us are here. You're listening to Too Long for Twitter. My name is Erica West. This is Kristen Sheets. Welcome. This week we are talking with Eric Blanc. He is a doctoral student in the sociology department at NYU. Um, you've probably read his stuff in Jacobin. He's been writing a lot about the teacher strikes across the country. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of that good stuff. Hi, Eric. Hey. Thanks for having me on. Look forward to it. Yeah, our pleasure. Eric was briefly at UC Berkeley when I was there. And Eric, I never sent this to you, but our comrade Eli made a meme of you about all the people you turned into revolutionary socialists. That's really sweet. Yeah, no, I never <laughs> saw that. I'll, I'll send it to my mom. She'll feel that I've done something with my life. Yeah. Um, I feel like we should do like a six degrees of separation. Like, who were you recruited by? Like, Eric Blanc, Alex Schmaus. Eric is super wonderful and is on the East Coast now, unfortunately. But Eric, do you maybe want to talk about, it looks like you were at Left Forum recently talking about the teacher's revolt, but do you just want to talk about maybe what Left Forum was like and what you talked about and what people were talking about at Left Forum recently in New York? People make fun of Left Forum sometimes because it's, yeah. um, I guess, a lot of sectarians there. But I'm, I'm from the Bay Area, so I'm sort of used to it. I felt like it was more like the normal amount of um, wackiness. Relative, yeah, relative wackiness and denunciations. I it was par for the course. So it was actually way less uh, weird. I thought it was just sort of a standard. You know, they had a forum on the teachers and got denounced by the Sparks, but it was like no big deal. It was fine. That was so, the most exciting part of my trip to Montreal was getting denounced by the Sparks in French. It was very exciting. Oh, in French, yeah, that's yeah. You know, it, it's they, the same. Uh, it's the same, but it's slightly similar. different. Yeah, even if you didn't speak French, you'd probably. Because I know you do, but if you didn't, you could probably still more or less get a, a gist oh, yeah. of, you know, what you're getting accused of. So we did a forum. It was, yeah, I thought it was great. Emily Comer, who's one of the strike leaders and rank-and-file militants in West Virginia, came up. And Jane McAlevey, who um, is a really great union organizer, uh, strategist, uh, they spoke. And I spoke on the panel as well. It was clear that across the country and just generally, people are excited about a strike wave. Of course, people are excited, right? Like, we haven't had a strike wave in literally 40 years. Mm-hmm. So the amount of discussion necessary to extract the lessons is pretty high. And that's what we tried to do with, with the forum there. 
and I think as we go into the summer, that's going to be useful generally is to really look a little bit more in depth on what the hell just happened. The basic contours people understand, right, as far as the bad pay and uh, the unions were weak and people fought back in a, you know, relatively, quote-unquote, spontaneous way. These, like, general things people know, but the real nitty-gritty of, for instance, like, why was Arizona more of a success than Oklahoma? Why did strikes happen in certain places and not others? Why were there just one-day walkouts in certain states and actual strikes elsewhere. Why did the union leadership act this way and, and not in the other? What was the role of socialism? All of these questions, I think, are extremely rich. And generally, the left doesn't have a very good sense of those details. And, it's, you know, the devil's in the details. Because if we're going to try to learn from these experiences, we have to go, I think, beyond just saying, yeah, things are bad. It's great. Workers are fighting back. You know, long live the working class, which is good. I like living long live the working class. I'm all about it. But, you know, I, long live the working class. But the question then becomes, well, what do we do to try to carry that militancy forward, both in similar and different contexts? Yeah, yesterday I was at a panel put on by the Oakland Education Association hosting different teachers who were on strike this past spring and One of them from West Virginia was saying that at this point, every week she's on a conference call and all of these teachers are connected with each other and talking and, you know, there's Facebook groups within Facebook groups and all of that's just to say that, yeah, it's super exciting to see 50,000 people all wearing red, you know, taking on the Capitol. But there's so much that goes on before that and after to keep these um, movements going. And as organizers, we know that it the devil's in the details and in the kind of more tedious work of setting up the Facebook group and moderating it and calling different people. And it's just amazing to see what they've been able to do. And I'm I'm really excited to see what happens in the fall. Yeah, I wanted to dive a little bit into what you were saying, Eric, about getting into the details. Um, you've written on several different strikes for Jacobin, um, you wrote about West Virginia, Oklahoma, and Arizona. And I was wondering if you could sort of compare the differences between how the strikes came to be in those different places and what the differences were on the ground. The short version, I think, is that you can bracket West Virginia and Arizona together as clear-cut victories, and Oklahoma less so. It was experienced by people as a defeat or mostly defeat. The differences as far as the gains won in relationship to the state, you know, what were the concessions won? In Arizona and West Virginia, um, they went further in, in getting both pay increases and concessions on funding. Oklahoma got a pay increase, but that's tenuous now. There's a right-wing initiative to reverse it in the upcoming November elections. And more importantly, in some ways, as the gains in terms of people uh, and working people's self-organization and their politicization and their confidence levels to continue fighting, that is clearly different in West Virginia and Arizona in comparison to Oklahoma. And in some ways, Arizona has gone the furthest. And, and that's interesting because West Virginia clearly was the first and kind of captured people's imagination. But I think that Arizona in some ways is the most remarkable strike of the whole wave so far. And the reason I say that is it's one of the least favorable political contexts you can imagine. So it's a long-standing bastion of the right wing. The 
anti-immigrant attacks have been going on for a very long time. It's also the center of privatization. It's got a higher percentage of charter schools than any other part of the country. And the unions there are weaker than not just West Virginia, where they're actually relatively strong, the teachers' unions, at least, but also weaker than Oklahoma. But nevertheless, their strike was more successful, more organized, and they're coming out of the strike with more momentum. Right now, they pivoted to immediately after the strike, a campaign to tax the rich in the upcoming November elections to basically win the funds that haven't been conceded yet by the state, to win that by directly taxing the 1%, raising their income taxes to fund schools. And there's mass organizing going on. They didn't miss a beat. And so that raises an interesting question then, because, you know, what explains that difference in outcomes, particularly when in a context you would think it would be hardest, ends up being more successful? The explanation initially when the strikes happened, you might remember, was when West Virginia popped off, the way people explained it, particularly in the mainstream media, was that this was the expression of traditions. West Virginia was coal miner state, and there's these militant traditions, and that's what explains this. The fact that the strike wave is spread in itself shows the limitations of that analysis, because most of the places it's spread to haven't had that level of um, labor tradition to lean on. And even in West Virginia, I think it's been pretty exaggerated. But... I think the short version, I've tried to write about this and I'll keep on harping on it because I think in some ways the big lesson of the strike wave is that I think the defining factor that explains the divergence between Arizona and West Virginia on the one hand and Oklahoma on the other is the existence in the successful states of what we can call a militant minority, which is basically a layer of radicals with some experience organizing capable of providing initiative and leadership in the class struggle. And that existed in West Virginia. The strike was initiated. The organizing was initiated by members of the DSA going way back to October and November of 2017. It wasn't this like spontaneous upsurge with no organizers in the way it's portrayed. And again, in Arizona, a lot of the core leaders of um, the rank and file movement that led the strike, even more so than in West Virginia, basically were socialists and Bernie crafts, people who had gotten first politicized through the Bernie Sanders campaign. So that Bernie context is very important because it led to a crystallization of a layer of activists in both of these states that ended up playing a central role in initiating the strikes. And I think that's very exciting. That's a generalized phenomenon. You know, the DSA has grown, the ISO has grown. And I think that for all of our weaknesses, um, and the socialist movement is still very weak, it shows that given the crisis that exists, particularly in education and the ferment that exists um, within the education sector in particular, there's a lot of space for radicals to play a role far beyond our numbers. We're not talking about huge numbers of socialists. We're talking about less than a handful in most of these states. And I think the political strategic implication of that then is, you know, we need to get our act together in other cities, other states, to try to implant ourselves, particularly in education and also healthcare. Um, so that we can try to play a similar leadership role when the context emerges for that to happen. And that's not always the case. You know, clearly there's some contexts that are much more difficult. The bureaucracy and the Democrats are stronger. Uh, You can't just sort of create a Facebook group and expect the strike wave to pop up. But I think that's the strategic lesson that's most important to kind of hammer home at this point. I think we would definitely agree with the importance of 
a militant minority and maybe something for socialists listening to this to think about, you know, sometimes it can feel alienating to have radical politics or feel like you're waiting for something that can never happen, but understanding the importance of trying to connect with other radicals in your workplace and the power that you can have, even as a small handful of people, when things do pop off um, in unexpected ways. You know, so much has been written about the teachers as it should be because they're amazing. But also we're seeing working class struggle and unionization in a couple different fields. And Kristen is a tech worker. Kristen, could you talk a little bit about some of the organizing that's been going on in relation to Google, how that's come from, you know, a small group of, it's been a lot of people, but there were people who were radicalized before some of this started. So we're thinking about, how do you say this company's name? Lynetics. Lynetics, thank you. That was a a workplace where workers tried to unionize and then were fired in mass, basically, which... Like 14 of them. That's true. In mass sounds, maybe has a different... It was the entire engineering department, though, of that company, which I think... Mass can be relative, right? Some of the, I'm no longer at Google, but some of the folks at Google who have been talking about, like, things that have inspired them in terms of taking a stand, like, direct connections to the teacher strikes is something that's come up quite a bit. Also, a lot of these folks first got politicized around Bernie Sanders, and Mm -hmm. there was a really high percentage of tech workers who were supporting Bernie Sanders in the primary, and I think those are two things that sort of... um, relate to each other in terms of understanding some of the similarities between what are the lines of connection that people are drawing in terms of what is inspiring them to take action in their workplace. Demands are different because of the relationship of, like tech right now is a pretty tight labor market. So a lot of the demands that are being raised aren't around more pay, um, which is one of the chief demands that we're seeing with teachers is they're being paid poverty wages they like can't survive off what they're being paid where that's not really the case with most workers at tech companies a lot of it has to do with having a say in how your technology is used hours is a big grievance big thing that's popped off here in at google is in response to a department of defense contract called project maven um, which is using machine learning for improved targeting for drones which i think we can say is horrible like anything supporting the military industrial complex I think is like quite a good target and especially I think many tech workers who work at a place like Google and who work in the private sector and aren't at like a company that specializes in military technology they're at these companies because they don't want to be working at a place like the Department of Defense not across the board but a, a lot and I think it's interesting that people are organizing enough where something like this could cave due to employee pressure. It's interesting and I think it's important to look at how these things are manifesting in different sectors of the economy. We're seeing across the board like the proletarianization of these different professions. That's something that Moody goes into in quite a bit in his latest book. Could you guys maybe talk more about what it means when you say something like lean production or like proletarianization. I think maybe these are things that concepts that people understand implicitly that like you're getting squeezed harder and harder and harder at your job. But maybe let's be more explicit with those terms, because I think these are things that people should. I think we'll get a lot out of learning more about. Casey, our producer, mentioned the concept of lean production. And that's something that 
even though these fields are different, right, like a 25-year-old white dude who works at Google and makes six figures, on the surface, you might think he doesn't have anything in common with a Latina custodian who works for AFSCME or like a black school teacher in Kentucky who has had her pension gutted and has three kids. You might understand these people as being really different, but their workplaces are being affected by some of the same economic pressures. I think that's an important point. People should keep in mind that actually teachers in all of these states are making more than like the median uh, salary. They're still, quote, like relatively privileged in context. They're not the worst off workers by far. That shouldn't be surprising. It's not generally true that the worst off workers are those who are at the fore of organizing at most points, generally the opposite, because it tends to be that workers who have a little bit more power and a little bit more cushion and a little bit more autonomy have space and confidence to fight back. And so the pay demands have been really foregrounded, but when you talk to teachers in all of the states, the pay is important, but it's very rarely the central thing that teachers themselves are angry about. In West Virginia, pay wasn't even one of the initial demands. Uh, the struggles around health care initially. But underlying a lot of that, including underlying the pay question, is pay almost as like a proxy for the general sense of the lack of respect for the job of being a teacher. And that has a lot to do not just with pay, but with what you mentioned as far as lean production, which for listeners who don't know, really just means how managers, whether in the private or public sector, try to squeeze the most amount of labor and time from their employees to make everything as efficient as possible from the standpoint of management um, to cut out as much as the you know free time or wasted time in the workday. And so what that looked like in teaching has been a huge amount of uh, influx in standardized testing, automation. Uh, mm -hmm. If you think about the use of computers and a lot of these technologies, the autonomy of teachers to come up with curriculum that's suited to their students and, you know, as a group and individually, the real, like, art of teaching has been significantly attacked, really led by the Democrats going back to Obama. Mm -hmm. So there's a general feeling that teachers' work is not being respected, both on the content of what they're doing and then the pay is parallel to that. So when you were talking about, you know, the tech workers, to me it actually sounds quite similar as far as some of the ways that people feel squeezed and devalued. I think it's not surprising then that you have similar types of demands for increased autonomy. You know, if you think about the demands against standardized testing, Really what a lot of that has to do with is teachers want to be able to teach um, and don't want to be dictated to by bureaucrats who have interest in metrics and privatization and not actual pedagogy. So mm -hmm. I think you probably see that in a lot of different sectors as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm also thinking about teachers who at their school, other professionals are being cut. So like counselors and, you know, therapists, nurses are getting cut. And so um, maybe a teacher is being expected to do all of these other different kinds of jobs that they didn't really sign up for and shouldn't be doing. 
I think yesterday at the Oakland teachers panel, there was someone who said their ratio of counselor to students is like one to 900, something completely absurd. Um, I'm a social worker. And so I know pretty well that as a employee, you only have the capacity to see so many people. So that's just literally impossible for one human to do. And I'm sure the same thing is with teachers in their classroom size, that if you have 50 10-year-olds in a classroom, I can't imagine a lot is going to get done in that day. One last thing about lean production is uh, when workers at the UCs across California in AFSCME went on strike recently in May, one of their biggest demands was also about healthcare. There's these different tiers that they are in, and some of it's based on how long you've worked there and different things, and also how you were hired. So a lot of people maybe were hired as contractors and then became full-time employees, which, again, is its own issue that people are so often contracted in their positions. And Kristen could probably talk about that with tech. But anyway, these AFSCME workers, their healthcare, the whole system and the different tiers of how you get your healthcare was going to change and it was going to get way more expensive and all of these different things. And so again, it wasn't necessarily the hourly wage that pushed them to go on strike. It was the healthcare, the benefits, the way that their work was structured. And as you said, Eric, the lack of respect, essentially, especially for AFSCME workers working at these um, UC campuses where there's just so much money and then reading, you know, things about Napolitano, like hiding hundreds of millions of dollars. It's just it's really awful because you you know that the money is there. This idea in Arizona to tax the rich is awesome because as socialists, we know that the money is there. It just should be being used for to help people meet their needs rather than sitting in Janet Napolitano's coffers or whatever the fuck she's doing. So yeah, I think definitely complicating the picture that it's not always just about pay. Although teachers asking for more pay is good. And I think that sort of ties in well with like the trends we're seeing in terms of trying to get as much out of any given hour of work for an employee, there's a similar trend towards just-in-time production where you're maximizing your entire supply chain to get just the amount of pieces that are needed for a delivery there as quickly as possible. And I think the logistics industry is something that's right at the heart of that entire global production system. Um, So the prospect of UPS going on strike is incredibly exciting. Hi, this is Too Long for Twitter. You can find us on twitter.com at too fucking long. We're also on iTunes and Patreon. If you have time, we'd highly encourage you to hit that subscribe button, give us those stars, and if you want to, please donate to our Patreon. It helps us keep producing this show. We'll be right back. remember when UPS went on strike? Was that in the like the late 90s, the last time? 
Yeah, I was 12. Not <laughs> were you around the left? Yeah, if you were 12, I was like six or something. Um, but I just... Yeah, my participation on the ticket line was relatively <laughs> limited. Um, but did, did your mom take yeah, so, you, though? That would have been extremely uh, I, I do actually remember it. It was a big deal. I mean, it was a really big deal. I think it was definitely before the Chicago teacher strike, the most important strike in U.S. labor in a long, long time. Because and it was nationwide. You had over 100,000 workers involved. And it really put us to for the struggle against a lot of the types of ways that labor is being transformed uh, under neoliberalism. So a lot of the full-time being transformed into part-time work. Issues like that were really central in 1997. And the strike won. And, you know, whenever you have a winning strike that people can look to and get excited about, that has really tremendous implications. It didn't spread. One of the exciting things about what we're seeing with the teachers now is that it has spread and mm-hmm. what would be amazing, clearly, is in the context of a strike wave, the teacher strike wave, if UPS goes out on strike, and so for listeners who don't know, there was a strike vote very recently, over 90% of workers authorized a strike, which doesn't mean that the strike will happen. It's, there's a relatively bureaucratic leadership still in charge of the union, the Teamsters. It's unclear what their plan is, and there's a rank-and-file caucus. Historically, Teamsters were a democratic union. Now it's Teamsters United, uh, sort of the public face that is pushing for a real strike. And to some of the similar things, if you want to make a parallel that we were talking about in these other contexts, is because the economy is doing relatively better, you know, UPS is making bank. They're making huge profits. Everybody knows it. There was just an article in Forbes that basically said it would be crazy for them not to go on strike and make a bunch of demands. Because clearly UPS has the money to give mm-hmm. them. So in that context, why should workers give up concessions like management wants, which right now the main concession would be to basically create a two-tier structure. So it's complicated, but part-timers who would become full-timers now would uh, be locked in at a different pay scale than other full-timers. That's the heart of the contention. And so it would create an uneven dynamic within the labor force that is clearly beneficial to the bosses. The point there is that if you could channel that anger which exists into a real strike, that private sector, huge, massive industry that UPS represents, combined in the context of a public sector strike, I, I, we haven't seen that in a really, really long time. That would be a real game changer. I think if UPS goes out, particularly with all of the other teachers' strikes we've seen, and also AT&T workers, I'm not sure if people saw, there's been thousands of AT&T um, workers out on strike who explicitly looked to the teachers as an example. The example of West Virginia and Arizona is a real, you know, material factor in the Teamsters also because people see that you can strike and win and it's going to be hard to kind of put that genie back in the bottle because the type of argument that is always used, which is that, you know, you have to accept whatever comes, that argument is less and less tenable, uh, I think, to workers. So that's you know, fucking amazing. I just pulled up this article on Forbes, and it looks like their contract expires on August 1st. So I'm really hoping that, like, the end of summer going into the fall, it will present an opportunity for a lot of this stuff to 
coalesce together, teachers going back to school. It's really, really exciting, um, especially as, like, millennials. Eric, do you consider yourself a millennial? I was told I was a millennial. You were told. You don't (laughs) self-identify. I will not. I will not call you a millennial. Do you self-identify as Gen X? I don't believe in labels, man. Uh, (laughs) Well, I was just going to say. Sure, millennial. I was just going to say, like, Casey is mad. Someone else born in 85, I stand with you. (laughs) Casey gets so mad when we talk about, like, oh, we're all in our 20s. We're so fun. And Casey's like, shut up. That being said, I do think there is a generational thing. Clearly, you know, all the polls that everybody's seen as far as, you know, young people supporting socialism or their capitalism. You know, that's real. That's super real. I, I think that most of that is still untapped. People are excited about the DSA growing. And what the DSA has 35,000 members. What did Bernie get? 12 million votes? Mm-hmm. You know, if we as socialists could, like, and not just the DSA, but the ISO and, and other revolutionary socialists, if we could seriously try to organize a quarter of people who voted for Bernie, mm-hmm. like, actually organize, that's totally doable. There's no reason why we can't. And with even a fraction of those people organized in the labor movement, even you know, the relative hollowing out of the labor movement. I think there's a lot of space and there's a reciprocal effect because if labor starts picking up, that's going to be hopefully where we're going to be able to recruit a lot of those Bernie supporters because they're out there but don't necessarily feel empowered to organize. You know, they voted for Bernie and they're seeing what happens. But Mm -hmm. having some sort of like real mass movement creates a different context for wider layers of people to become organizers themselves. And that's the, that would be the ideal situation. You know, whether it happens or not, it's hard to say, but that would certainly be the most hopeful scenario. Yeah, also speaking about the generational thing, like there were thousands of high schoolers who walked out of their campuses and organized uh, around gun violence, and those kids like weren't even able to vote for Bernie Sanders. There's definitely momentum that that's untapped in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. Well, the reason I brought up being a millennial is just that I don't think it can be really emphasized enough that, like, we have not really seen anything except, like, austerity and neoliberalism and being squeezed and seeing kind of what labor can do and what strikes can do. Like, I don't think I've ever seen this in my entire life. So I just think it's really exciting for this this wave of kind of young radicalizing people to see what you know, work stoppage can achieve and, you know, use that to further our radicalization. And um, Eric, like you said, like recruit more people to our organizations, organize these people, get those people who voted for Bernie to kind of come and be involved in our movements and unions. I don't know. I'm just super excited for the people who are watching this and getting radicalized in their own workplaces. One thing we didn't talk about is a lot of young-ish people um, in media organizing and the New Yorker just unionized, which is super exciting. Um, And one of our comrades in um, New York in the ISO was really involved in that. You see that young people are really sympathetic to unions and want them and are voting to get them. And I don't know, it's just like, it's a really exciting time. Yeah, shout out to The Onion. (laughs) Always shout out to The Onion. Um, Because they're unionized and just their work is phenomenal. Well, they're going ham since unionized. They've and been going more ham than usual. Yeah, they've just been... Like, they just been killing it. Um, no, The Onion is an important news source. 
America's finest news. The vanguard of the labor movement. <laughs> they really are. I heard a joke once that was like the Onion is like the U.S.'s most prominent like leftist publication. <laughs> they really are. Is there anything? else maybe you want to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about or you know if you could kind of give a little lesson to leftists listening to this who maybe themselves aren't unionized um who maybe are in blue states you know what would you want the takeaway to be from all the work you've been doing yeah i would just definitely say read the onion (laughs) that's the the big takeaway that i've learned i I didn't actually know that before this conversation but now i do so Mm -hmm. um takeaway my other takeaway though would be the way most of us as radicals have looked at politics because of the circumstances we lived under up until recently was relatively divorced from the labor movement even those of us who are marxists i think there's a level of remoteness of labor because there hasn't been mass strikes um on a widespread level and, and much of us aren't in unionized workplaces and so those types of arguments as far as where one should prioritize your political activism were much harder to make. The question then of really trying to win a whole generation of radicals to the idea that used to be widespread and accepted on the left uh, in this country and elsewhere, which is that the workplace is the single most um, potentially powerful site of resistance that our site has. Like as socialists, that's where we think we want to prioritize our strategic focus. And what that means in the concrete is, particularly for those of us who don't have jobs yet, like think about becoming a teacher, think about getting a job in healthcare. I think those are the two you know, sectors of the economy that are clearly, for the foreseeable future, are going to be central towards militant organizing. And they're good jobs. I don't think we should glorify it. You know, being an organizer at your workplace is very hard because you both have to be a really good worker and then you also have to be very patient because it's slow going. It's not like a social movement in which it's sort of self-selecting, and that's both the limits and the potential because what that means is you're obliged to talk to mostly people who disagree with you on a lot of things. And so learning how to do that, learning how to win respect, and learning how to build influence amongst people who have a wide set of you know perspectives that have a common interest on certain important issues that is an invaluable experience, and there's no real way to learn about it. In a book, you kind of have to do it, and ideally do it collectively with other comrades and part of a uh, socialist organization, part of a rank-and-file caucus in a union, part of a good union that is doing that. That, as a project, I think is the most meaningful, long-term, kind of strategic perspective for socialists, both as far as where we should be focusing our work and elsewhere. And that's not to say that struggles outside the workplace are, uh, like, not important. Clearly they are, whether it's Black Lives Matter or immigrant rights. But if you look historically, I think the argument is pretty strong that even on the questions of, like, the fight against oppression, the most leverage we'll have historically and and in the future to win those, a lot of times to win on those issues without organized labor, I find hard to imagine. So, you know, you can look at the really important role that unions played in the civil rights movement or look at, like, the 2006 mass strikes around immigrant rights, it's when people withhold their labor and when they organize at the workplace that you're able to really create a crisis for the system. And it's that, for whatever issue you're organizing around, I think, whether it's climate change or, you know, what have you, I don't see us winning without reorienting towards the workplace. 
And that is like a challenge and it's also just a huge opportunity. And uh, for the first time, for most of us, it seems like a opportunity that's real and not just something we sort of read about in a study group. No, Casey sounds like she's on NPR. It's really nice. I love it. <laughs> no, it's good. I like NPR. I mean, it, it helps me understand what the libs are thinking about. And dead pendant to me. <laughs> Sorry. What? I, really <laughs> I was trying to say the word independent and just like my vowels didn't work and then I tried to correct it and it just got way worse. Uh, independent media like this depends on your support. If you like what you hear, leave us a review and consider a monthly subscription on Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you can make this podcast possible and get access to bonus content. That's sweet, sweet bonus content. Sorry, also, Casey just not as it to me. Not as sexual as it sounds. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, listener, Normal if... Normal content. Yeah, he does. For for just a dollar. For a mere... For a mere... Toppins. You can support our work by subscribing to our Patreon. Was that too goofy? What is a bizarre... I'm trying to think of something that you would spend small, a dollar on or that, that would be funny. Small monies. A pittance. A pittance. It's so weird my mom would for, uh, do, do kids still know. smoke swishers for for the price of a swisher? For a price of a, <laughs> a blueberry swisher. swisher. Hell yeah, they do. Small. Small. For a mere... I don't know where. Find though. us online at too long on twitter.com and too long for twitter on patreon.com. Thank you for listening. It's been great. I've loved it. I've loved having you hear me. It's good. Was that real? I love to be heard. Is that real? I don't know. Thank you for listening to Too Long for Twitter. You can find us online at too fucking long. We're also on Patreon for a mere small amount of money. The amount of money you would spend on a coffee or a swisher. You can support our work. You can also find us on SoundCloud and you can subscribe to us on iTunes. We would really appreciate you subscribing and writing reviews. The Apple algorithm really likes those things. So like and subscribe. Produced by Josh and Casey, who keep us on task, who keep us talking about the issues at hand, who are good. Mm-hmm.